Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 9.19 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. It is what? The 18th of January, 2023. This is episode, what, 650, what the hell is it? <laughs> 658 of Bitcoin. And there's a huge announcement from the Department of Justice. Oh my God. They are... The law enforcement people in the United States are on your side, ladies and gentlemen. They've announced a huge thing. And, you know, how big is it? Let's find out. Let's just, let's go to the announcement right now. Justice Department agents and prosecutors working in partnership with the Treasury Department and French law enforcement have disrupted Bitslato, a China-based cryptocurrency exchange notorious for laundering criminal proceeds from the dark net. And last night, agents of the FBI arrested Bitslato's founder, Anatoly Legodimov. I am joined today by the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, Kenneth Polite, the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, Brian Peace, FBI Associate Deputy Director Brian Turner and the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury Wally Adiemo. Today's law enforcement actions put all of those who seek to exploit the cryptocurrency ecosystem on notice that the Department of Justice will use every tool working along with our partners, every tool that we have to attack the criminal use of the dark net and cryptocurrency. And we are taking steps to address the crisis of confidence in the cryptocurrency markets, where criminals and fraudsters seek to operate beyond the reach of law enforcement. Malicious actors working from what they think are safe havens are exploiting crypto markets and flouting the laws and the regulations that guard the integrity of our financial system and along with it, the earnings and investments of law-abiding Americans. It's no secret that cyber criminals rely on these bad actors to launder their criminal proceeds from cryptocurrency into fiat currency. But today, thanks to a coordinated international effort Justice Department prosecutors and agents have disrupted a busy corner of this criminal ecosystem. Last night in Miami, FBI agents arrested Legodimov, a Russian national and the founder and majority owner of Bitslato, a Hong Kong registered cryptocurrency exchange. 
The charges allege that he operated Bitslato as a high-tech financial hub, as he put it, that catered to, quote, known crooks. Bitslato failed to implement safeguards required by U.S. law, safeguards that enable law enforcement to detect and to investigate financial crimes. Instead, Bitslato facilitated the transmission of hundreds of millions of dollars in illicit funds, fueling darknet marketplaces, and laundering the proceeds of ransomware attacks. For example, as alleged, Bitslato was a crucial financial resource for the notorious Hydra darknet market, the disruption of which I announced from this podium last April, at that time with our German partners. Now, Hydra was the world's longest running and largest darknet marketplace, responsible for 80% of the world's darknet transactions. Together, Hydra and Bitslato formed a high-tech axis of crypto crime. Hydra buyers funded illicit purchases of illegal drugs, stolen financial information, and hacking tools from crypto accounts hosted at Bitslato. And sellers of these illegal goods and services at Hydra sent criminal proceeds to accounts at Bitslato all to the tune of over $700 million in direct and indirect transfers between 2018 and 2022. Now, I've said before that we would go after the entire ecosystem that allows cyber criminals and illicit actors to flourish. Today's action against Bitslato, as with the disruption of Hydra, reflects another critical step in executing on that strategy. Wow, I feel safer already. Man, Justice Department really putting the screws to Bits Lotto. Bits Lotto. Have you even heard of Bits Lotto? Sure, we've heard of Hydra and the dark net part, but Bits Lotto? Never even heard of it before. $700 million. And I love how she said fiat currency. You know, they can't, they, they can't escape it anymore. Because honestly, I don't give a, a, a flying crap about Bits Lotto or a Russian guy working out of China. It, this is all just, it's all par for the course. But I just love how they were just, had this huge announcement. And it's for this Russian guy that I almost nobody's heard of before. I don't know, man. <clears throat> I, I don't think it's fishy. I think it's probably above board and everything like that, but come on. Yes. Everybody's like, oh my God, what's it going to do to the price? What's it going to do to the price? Nothing. Nothing. You know, I mean, and I kind of, honestly, I kind of thought that this was going to be a little bit bigger of announcement, but no, it wasn't. But that is going on today. That was just made uh, at, I don't know, they were 10 minutes late to their own damn press conference, honestly. How hard is it to be on time? I mean, I'm a private citizen. I am not late to shit. I am early to things. 
how how the hell is it that you can be the Department of Justice and be 10 minutes late to your own damn press conference? It's like they just don't care. You know, I I don't like wasting people's time. That's why I'm early to meetings or interviews or whatever it is that I'm going to so that I can make sure that I'm on time, right? It's it's not hard. It it's just not. But, you know, we there's other things that we need to be doing. Uh, what else? What do we need to be doing? We'll probably need to be looking at uh, Boostagrams, honestly. And I got a few right here from show 656 or episode 656. I got Bubba, 21,012 sats. That's an expanded uh, rush boost, by the way. Everything old is new again and very worthwhile. Computer skills very in the nature or way in the in the future will not age as well as old world skills and truly mechanic skills of life there are trees in the forest the oaks are fighting the maples for light <laughs> again a rush <laughs> definitely about rush uh they will be made equal by hatchet and saw yeah hatchet axe and saw is the way that 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 line actually goes if you don't know he's talking about rush's song the trees which is uh it talks about race um and it talks about oaks and maples fighting for the light in the forest and uh you know the oaks are bitching at the maples and the maples are bitching at the oaks and here comes the guy with the, you know the forestry guy and he keeps them all equal by hatchet axe and saw we should probably remember that because as we're fighting with each other all the fucking time Somebody else is waiting, waiting for our distraction to strike with hatchet, axe, and saw. Generally speaking, those are the government agencies of the world. Moving on, burn, baby, burn, Crypto Inferno. This is uh, at Dirty Jersey Whore, 19,760 Satoshis. Lumberjack, oh, thank you, Dirty Jersey Whore. Uh, And I hear your name, honestly, on a... uh, no agenda quite a bit. I am I am honored that you have come over here and bestowed Satoshis upon me. Uh, Lumberjack Hoddle with 10,000 sats. This is your Lumberjack buddy from episode 411, and I know exactly who this is. Well, that was a fantastic episode. You know, this one hits hard for the folks like us that work in forestry. A couple loggers on our crew wanted to say hello and thank you personally, keeping us informed out in the woods. Little John and Big Dan. All right, Little John and Big Dan, thank you again for the 10,000 Satoshis. 411, episode 411, talking like three years ago, that or four, uh, two years ago. It's a long time. I was still living in the panhandle in, of Texas at that time. Uh, I, I appreciate you still listening to me and I'm glad that I'm able to do you guys some, some good. Hope you appreciated the hatchet axe and saw stuff, uh, <laughs> from my buddy Bubba, uh, Fatoshi 7,778 sat says shib, 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 <laughs> loving you losing your mind. I wonder how many people don't even think to cook a simple meal for themselves. It all comes served up in a tray. Thank you for the show. You're welcome, dude. Letter 70 or oh, no, letter 6173 with striper boost. Uh, no notes except for lightning, fire, fire, fire. Uh, 1,000 sats from Saint and Sats. This episode is fire. Oh, I'm glad you guys are liking that one. 
Fat Toshi with uh, 778 sat said, I heard a Chinese saying, I thought you'd uh, dig, quote, we're so poor, all we have is money, end quote. That's an interesting, that's, leave it to the freaking Chinese, especially the ancient Chinese to come up with something fairly profound. I'm going to have to think on that one for a while. Nick underscore dose 169 sat says, cheers. Yes. And those are, those are the uh, boostograms for episode 656. If I remember, I'll do 657 in the second part of the show, but we've got, you've guessed it, other fish to fry. Bitcoin Magazine, Shinobi. To become Bitcoin's go-to platform, Noster will have to solve its key management issues. Yeah, here we go. And Shinobi's gonna, Shinobi is really well thought out when, he come, when it comes to this kind of thing. And I've noticed some issues of key management, but we have to remember, there are always going to be problems with new platforms new protocols because this really isn't Noster really isn't a platform guys it's a protocol it's a way to talk to each other and each other being clients or platforms that's what'll use the protocol but let's 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 get into what shinobi has to say i suggest before reading this that you read the prior article i wrote explaining what Noster is and how it works at a high level you should then have a good idea of the core design of the system at that point. So now let's take a look at likely problems that are going to occur as it grows in adoption. With the flat platform becoming a popular one for the Bitcoin community, these problems are ones to be aware of. As I discussed in the prior article, user public-private key pairs are integral to how Nostra works as a protocol. There are no usernames or any type of identifiers that a relay server is in control of to associate to individual users. It is simply those users' keys that are completely under their control. This functions as a tight binding between the actual user and how they are identified by others that prevents any relay server from unbinding those two things, i.e. giving someone's identifier to another user. This solves one of the biggest fundamental problems of platforms used for communication between people, the lack of control over users' own identities. But it also introduces all of the problems of key management that someone possessing a private key runs into. Keys can be lost and keys can be compromised. And if such an event were to occur, users have no one to go to for assistance. Just like with Bitcoin, there's no customer support to recover anything. You lose it, that's it. This is going to inevitably necessitate a scheme for which users to rotate from one key pair to another in a way that is verifiable and discoverable for other users that they interact with through the protocol. The entire protocol is based around proving that an event came from a specific user or identity key so all of those guarantees go out the window once someone's keys are compromised. How do you handle that? Just go check their Twitter account? Well, then that's not a very decentralized system ultimately if you require using a centralized platform where they are not in control of 
said identity to verify their Noster identity? Have other users attest to the legitimacy of a new key? Uh, that doesn't address situations such as mass key compromises or not knowing anyone close to them well enough to trust their attestation. Noster needs an actual cryptographic scheme tying the rotation of one key to another. There is a proposal from developer Fiat Joff for a basic scheme that could potentially solve this issue. The basic idea would be to take a long set of addresses derived from a single master seed and create a set of tweaked keys similar to how taproot trees are committed to a Bitcoin key. Taproot makes the Merkle tree root of the taproot tree and adds it to the public key to create a new public key. This can be replicated by adding that Merkle tree root to the private key in order to attain the matching private key for the new public key. Fiat Jaff's idea is to chain commitments going backwards from the end to the beginning so that each tweaked key would actually contain a proof that the next tweaked key was used to create it. All oh, that sounds like a blockchain. It does. It sounds like a blockchain. It's not a proof of work blockchain. It's just at, in, in this particular case, and this is me talking, this isn't, this isn't Shinobi. It sounds to me like what he's doing is like, if I've got an event and I send it out over Noster and I'm using Domus on iOS right now to do that. So I say, good morning, I don't know, Bitcoiners or Nostriches or whatever. That's an event. Well, if that event is hashed and then that hash is added, I don't know, I guess to my public key, you know, and then that hash and public key is then added to the next event, I've got a chained identity that goes back reaching through my history. I'm kind of liking this idea because hashes are, are they're, not, they're not heavy in data. They're very lightweight, but they are very specific. They are so specific that if I were to hash the sentence, 250, like a SHA-256 hash of good morning nostriches is going to be completely, a completely different hash from good morning nostriches period. It's going to be completely different, not kind of different, 100% different. There will be nothing. It'll, those two hashes will look nothing alike. I think I know where Shinobi's going on this. And honestly, I kind of like it. Let's continue. So imagine starting with key Z, the last one in the chain. You would tweak this with something and then go backwards and create a tweaked version of key Y using the tweaked Z key. From here, you would take Y prime and then use it to tweak X. You would do this all the way back to key A to get A prime and from there, begin using that key. When it is compromised, the user can broadcast an event containing the untweaked key A and tweaked key B prime. This would contain all of the data needed to show B prime was used to generate A prime and users could immediately stop following A prime and follow B prime instead. They would know definitively that B prime is the user's next key and to follow that one instead. Man, this sounds like a fork. Says the way this matches the way Bitcoin works is, is delicious, honestly. This proposal, 
Still has some problems though. First, you have to generate all the keys you would ever use ahead of time, and it has no way to rotate to a whole new set of keys. This could be dealt with by committing to a master key in this scheme that could notarize such rotations or simply generating a very large set of keys from the very beginning. Either path would be a valid course to take, but ultimately would require keeping a root key or key material safe and only exposing individual hotkeys to Nostr clients. This scheme, however, does nothing to protect users or offer a mechanism for identity recovery in the event that the root key material is lost or is itself compromised. Now, this isn't to say that there is no benefit to Fiat Joff's scheme. There absolutely is, but it's important to make the point that no solution solves every problem. To pontificate a bit on potential solutions here, imagine instead of a chain of tweaked keys like he proposes, that a key is tweaked with a master cold key that must also be used to sign the event rotating from one key to another. You have key A prime, which is derived by adding A and M, M being the master key, and the rotation event would be A, M, and B prime generated by adding B and M, the M being the master key with the signature from M, the master key. M could be a multi-sig threshold key, two of three, three of five, etc. This could potentially add redundancy against loss, as well as provide a secure mechanism for key rotations. This opens the door as well to using services to aid in recovery or spreading some of those keys around to trusted friends. It offers all of the same flexibility as Multisig does with Bitcoin itself. NIP26 is also a proposal that could be very useful in handling this problem. This specifies a protocol extension to events, allowing a signature for one key to authorize another key to post events on its behalf. The token, or signature proof of delegation, would then be included in all events posted by the second public key on the first's behalf. It can even be time limited so that delegation tokens automatically expire and have to be renewed. Ultimately, however it is solved, this problem has to be solved for Nostra in the long term. A protocol based entirely on public-private key pairs being used as identities cannot gain traction and adoption if the integrity of those identities cannot be protected and maintained for users. That eventually will boil down to having to constantly use out-of-band and centralized platforms to verify new keys and coordinate people following your new identity when something is lost or compromised. And at that point, those other platforms become a means to sow confusion and engage in censorship. Yay! Issues of key management and security are big problems with a very large design space full of trade-offs and pain points, but they are problems that are going to have to be solved within the context of Nostr for it to work. In my next article, I will summarize some issues that I see cropping up in regards to relay server architecture and scaling issues that Nostr developers will have to confront given the basic data structures that Nostr is built upon. For anyone reading and wondering why I haven't mentioned decentralized identifiers, DIDs, yes, that is a potential solution to these problems that, in my opinion, is quite comprehensive. However, 
Nostra developers seem very hesitant to integrate DIDs into the protocol or clients due to the fact that it would create external dependencies outside of the Nostra protocol. If you're not familiar with how DIDs work on a technical level and are interested, this article by Level 39 is very well written summarization of how they work. Okay, so I, I, I agree 100% with what Shinobi's saying. In fact, you know, like I wonder about my private key, you know, how, you know, on what platform was it generated? Is, is it safe? Because we're talking about the private key, my public key that I use for Nostr to quote unquote sign in, it's sort of like your username and your private key is your password, which after you're signed in allows you to actually send a note or reply to people or, or make and construct events. Okay, you have to have your private key to do that. Your public key is derived from that. So if your private key is compromised, you're kind of hosed for Noster. But again, and I I I think Shinobi's missing one thing. In the future, he's absolutely correct. But for right now, where we are with the Noster protocol we should expect tragedy to occur and have some kind of mechanism, even if it is centralized, like going back to Twitter, which I can't do because I've been banned five times and I'm just fucking done. I can't do that. And I'm not going to, you know, use Facebook. I can't, I don't even remember how to sign into Facebook. I've, I've, I think I've lost it like lost everything that I had, you know, needed to be able to get back into Facebook. And I just, I just don't care. <coughs> Maybe a telegram group there, there's a telegram group specifically for people that are getting banned off of Twitter so that they have an alt identity that they can go to telegram and say, Hey, follow this one. Uh, this identity got screwed. And Shinobi's absolutely right. That's not really the way this should work in the future. But for right now, we need to understand that the way that we've generated our private keys very well may be completely compromised and that we will be completely hosed and somehow or another we will have to work as humans to be able to get our identities back and and prove to other people somehow okay it, this is hard this should be easy in the future but right now we are trading the easy for the hard I talked about this in the last couple of shows. I think as a human species, we're ready for the hard. We've had it so easy for so long. We're ready for the hard. Embrace the hard. Learn from the hard. It's okay. If my identity gets completely hosed on Noster, I will figure it the fuck out. I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to, you know, beat my head against a wall. I'm going to figure out how to prove my identity. That's how the human brain should work under duress. You should be able to solve the problem. Just because the problem exists doesn't mean that a protocol is completely worthless. There will be people that will say, look, look at what Shinobi's saying. He is right. Noster is host. That's not what Shinobi's saying. Shinobi's saying there are problems. You should expect problems. You should have plan B as workarounds to those problems, right? We're not babies. We're not children. We're adults. We can figure it out. Still though, 
look to Shinobi because he's one of the, he's one of the better thinkers in the space when it comes to this kind of thing. And I think he's onto something. I also think Fiat Jeff is onto something. And the whole notion of a multi-sig private key that will generate a public key for my identity, or, or not my identity, the, the multi-sig private key is my identity, but for me to be able to sign into Nostra with a public key generated by that multi-sig key, that is, I think that's the way that we're going to end up going. That makes the most sense to me because then I can just generate another public key and then put out like a challenge to the first public key that basically says, you need to come up with your own public key that's derived from my public key to prove that you are who you say you are. And if it doesn't, boom, that public key is completely deleted or somehow or another uh, flagged as a compromised public key. See what I'm saying? Now, we got other stuff going on too, by the way. What do we have next? We got, oh, Kevin O'Leary. Captain Obvious on deck. Felix Nguyen, I can't pronounce the word N-G. Hey, somebody, it give me a boostagram. And how the hell do you pronounce N-G? Because I think it's like uh, uh, Korean or you know, or, or Chinese or something like that. I can't pronounce NG. I don't know how to do it. If you can boost a gram me and tell me how to pronounce that, I I'd appreciate it. But this one's out of coin telegraph quote. There will be many more zeros. Kevin O'Leary on FTX light collapses to come. Yeah. Captain obvious unregulated crypto exchanges will continue to fall like dominoes post FTX with plenty more meltdowns to come. Warren shark, Tank star and investor Kevin O'Leary. The former spokesperson and proponent for the now bankrupt FTX exchange told Kitco anchor David Lynn in a January 17th interview that FTX was just one in a long line of unregulated exchanges likely to fail. Quote, if you're asking me if there's going to be another meltdown to zero, absolutely. 100% it'll happen and it'll keep happening over and over and over again. End quote. Thank God Kevin O'Leary is here to line me out on shit that he should have known before he ever became a spokesman for FT fucking X. If you believe anything this guy has to say, I, I don't know what, I cannot help you. If he was, if he's supposed to be so smart, then he should have known FTX was going to die. Right. And now here he is telling us the obvious and he gets paid to do this. These are the people that are on mainstream media. It's so sad. If, if you, if a friend of yours in high school were to say something like you're at a football game and you're watching your high school, you know, your high school football team just get wiped out. And it's like, 47 to zero with two minutes left to play. And your friend turns to you and says, I don't think we're going to win tonight. What's your reaction to that? Because that's what this is. <laughs> Unregulated exchanges are those that aren't subject to regular auditing, aren't registered or regulated by securities commission and don't operate under rules similar to traditional stock exchanges and or brokerages quote. Well, all of these exchanges, all the unregulated exchanges are having massive outflows right now. 
Smart money, smart, smart money has got the joke. They saw what happened to FTX and they're not sitting around for an explanation. He said, oh, Captain Obvious. The Shark Tank star <clears throat> then made a stark warning to so-called unregulated crypto exchanges, quote, if you're not willing to be audited, you don't have an audit, you don't want to be transparent, you don't want to disclose ownership, why should institutional capital stay? Of course, it's not going to, end quote. Says the, the former spokesperson for FTX and cheerleader. The collapse of FTX in November prompted fierce calls from the community for greater transparency from crypto exchanges. Within weeks, five, count them, one, two, three, four, five centralized exchanges completed their proof of reserve audits while plenty more announced plans to do the same. However, some observers, including a senior official from the United States SEC, warned that proof of reserves don't paint a true picture of a company's financial position and asked investors to be very wary of the claims being made. Some of the auditors, such as Mazars, have seemingly backflipped on their support for crypto companies. In December, the company removed its audit for crypto exchange Binance and reportedly stopped doing proof of reserve audits for crypto companies altogether. An other auditing firm, such as FTX auditor Armanino, have also reported also reportedly stopped working with crypto exchanges like OKX and Gate.io. O'Leary said, quote, frankly, you know, it's very hard to find an auditor that wants to touch this stuff right now because of the unregulated cowboy environment. It's all going to end, and yes, there will be many more zeros. End quote. Earlier this month, O'Leary's fellow Shark Tank host Mark Cuban told the street that the crypto wash trading on central exchanges, centralized exchanges will be the cause of the next crypto implosion. Dude, a day late and a dollar short, my friend. All this has happened before. Ah. Uh, okay, so now it's 56 to zero. Yeah, I don't think we're going to win. As much as 70% of the volume on unregulated exchanges is wash trading, according to a December report by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Despite the noise, O'Leary said he's doubling down on his crypto investments, particularly in Bitcoin. Quote, I have been going back into crypto markets lately. Anytime Bitcoin drops below 17,000, I add to our positions there. End quote. Further quote, crypto is getting very interesting because we're finally starting to see the bearer of regulation coming into play. And I think long-term that's good. Well, of course, O'Leary thinks that that's good. He's been screaming for regulation for the last two and a half years, but I love, I love this one. Well, if I can find it again, hold on, let's see. What was I, I was seeing greater transparency. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see where some observers including a senior official from the SEC, warned that proof of reserves don't paint a true picture of a company's financial position and asked investors to be very wary of the claims being made. That is true. Why? Tell you why. I can have, let's say that tomorrow I open up Dave's Darknet exchange for Bitcoin, all right? And I can prove, and I do prove beyond a shadow of a doubt because I say, hey, this is the wallet or this is a wallet. And you know, you can look inside that wallet because I give you the wallet address. You can look inside that wallet 
and you can see how much Bitcoin is in that wallet. <clears throat> if I say here's four wallet addresses, you can look in all four and you can add it all up together and say, yes, he's got at least this much Bitcoin. But it what it won't tell you is because I'm operating in a fiat world, it's not telling you what my expenses are. It's not telling you if I've got debt in, in fiat loans. It, there's a lot of stuff that proof of reserves won't tell you. What you can guarantee is that if, you, if I've given you a wallet address and say, look inside that wallet, it will show you how much Bitcoin is in that wallet. Do I really own that wallet? If I get, what if I give you an address to like a smaller whale that nobody knows about? I, it's possible. I'm just saying there's probably needs to be even better mechanisms for proof of reserves than what we have right now. I'm not saying that it's a scam or it's a lie or anything like that, but there's a lot of work to do. And again, problems have solutions. We don't, we don't have to act like we're all children and that we're all going to die if a meteorite strikes the you know, quote unquote crypto industry again. There are many meteorites on the way. There are very, there, we are nowhere close to the end of extinction level events that, that have occurred in this space. And many more will come. Bitcoin will always survive, but how you navigate that is going to be how you survive in the end, right? Uh, do I want to do SAS mining? Uh, SAS mining launches a hydroelectric powered mining facility in Wisconsin. Um, that's announced by BTC, or uh, sorry, BTC, Bitcoin Magazine. I'm not going to read it, but you know, hey, we've got, you know, Wisconsin is, is, seems to be okay for right now before they say, I don't know, make it illegal to give power to Bitcoin miners. We'll, we'll have to see what Wisconsin does, uh, how they act over the next year with this will give us a very good clue as to whether they're going to be communist or not. Just, you know, just saying. Okay, here's one. This is a good one. Uh, crypto bank Silvergate reports a $1 billion net loss in the fourth quarter amid industry's crisis of confidence Tim Hockey, Decrypt.co. Crypto bank Silvergate's latest financials indicate the firm has been hit hard by the ongoing crypto crisis. The firm's Q4 report indicated a $1 billion net loss attributable to shareholders, citing a transformational shift in the crypto industry, which led to a crisis of confidence across the ecosystem. Yeah, stop shitcoining and this won't happen. Despite the dreary results, Dreary, dreary. I can't say anything this morning. Despite the dreary results, Silvergate CEO Alan Lane insisted that the firm's mission has not changed. Oh my God, it hasn't changed. Thank God. Adding that the company remains focused on providing value added services for its core institutional customers. The California based bank specializes in cryptocurrency transactions having also worked with the now bankrupt crypto exchange FTX and its sister trading firm Alameda Research. Silvergate was hit with a class action lawsuit last December over these dealings. Earlier in January, Silvergate also announced that it would be cutting its headcount by 40%. 
that's about 200 people, in order to stymie the downturn and allow the firm to navigate what it calls a more challenging macro environment. So there you go, Silvergate announcing a $1 billion loss. That's pretty substantial for, you know, for Silvergate. Um, do they survive? I don't know. And honestly, I don't care. I probably should care because it spells doom for Bitcoin. No, it doesn't. All of this needs to be burned down. It all needs to be burned out. There's too much fuel on the forest floor. And the heat of this fire is raging. This is one of the best times to be in Bitcoin. It's not if you bought it 69,000, I understand and my heart goes out to you. You gotta, you gotta be able to wait. If your time preference, if you've got a high time preference, survivability is almost non-existent. If you have a low time preference, you can survive damn near everything except a meteorite directly falling on your head. And I mean an actual iron meteorite flying through the Earth's atmosphere and striking you right on the noggin. All right. If you got a low time preference for all this stuff, you're doing better than 90% of people in the quote unquote crypto industry. And speaking of, the EU has postponed a final vote on MICA for the second time in two months. Cointelegraph, Prashant Jha has it. The final vote on the European Union's much-awaited set of crypto rules known as the Markets and Crypto Assets Regulation, or MICA, was deferred to April of 2023. It marks the second delay in the final vote, which was previously postponed from November 2022 to February of 2023. And we're not even in February and they've already postponed it again. The latest delay is due to a technical issue where the official 400 page document couldn't be translated into the 24 official languages of the EU. According to the block, legal documents like the MICA, which are drafted in English, must comply with EU regulations and be published in all 24 official languages of the union. Oh my God. Ugh. You know what? It, I, I don't think it's even worth reading on beyond that because we've got the gist of it, right? They've delayed it again, but this time, yeah, it's because they couldn't get it translated. You, the, really, think about, the, think about it. The European Union, right? This, I don't know, shine, the second shining city on the hill is what I think it has been called or what they wanted when they started this, all, this whole thing in the 70s and the 80s. Got 24, you know how many languages you have in the EU. As you add countries, you're not adding a translator to your core translating team? Really? When, when you're legislating for 24 different countries, probably not, you know, probably mostly against their wishes because, you know, they got suckered into the EU through either threats, manipulation, or the cheap and easy loans or whatever it is that they do to people in the EU. Um, they, they really, you, you didn't add their languages to your ability to translate. That seems like an incompetence level of bullshit. I mean, how incompetent can you be? You know, you're going to have to give these people their, the, the information in their, in their native languages. And yet you're not able to do it. How, how is that even remotely competent? Every piece of legislation needs to be able to do that. 
needs to be able to be translated into 24 different languages. You know it has to be done. How come you can't do it this time? See, at this point, I'm kind of not sure whether or not they can or not. It sounds almost like they're using it as an excuse. I don't know why, but it doesn't really matter. Let's screw it. Let's, let's run the numbers. All right, let's start with West Texas Intermediate, which is down <coughs> 0 0.01% to $80.18. Uh, Brent North Sea down a third of a point to $85.63. Natural gas, as usual, is the one that's taking taking it hard. 5.83% to the downside to $3.37 uh, per thousand cubic feet. You know, not too long ago was at 10 bucks. 11 bucks per thousand cubic feet. What happened? With Europe was supposed to have the worst winter and they're not getting they're not getting anything from Russia, right? I mean it's like you know Putin's starving them and and I mean aren't they freezing to death yet? What the hell's going on? I think the I I think that I don't think the entire Ukraine thing was to manipulate natural gas markets. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that it looks to me like people in the natural gas markets were like, oh boy, oh boy, a European war. We haven't had one of those in a while. Let's see what we can do. And they jacked, they were able to bid that price up to 10 to $11 and it couldn't hold. And now it's back down to below where it was like, I don't know, a year and a half ago. I mean, even even under normal circumstances, before COVID, before Ukraine, before any of that shit, $3.50 to $4.50 per thousand cubic feet, it's kind of normal. I've seen it as low as $2.50, right? I mean, I've seen it lower than that, but I mean, in, you know, in the last decade or so. Yeah, 10 bucks. And it may get up there again because these guys, you know, Smartest guys in the room and all that shit. Metals, however, taking a bath today. Gold down a quarter of a point, but it's still at 1905 bucks. Silver is down uh, over 2%, $23.55. Platinum is down almost a half. Copper down scant. Palladium down almost two points. Ag is mixed with the biggest loser being wheat. Nope, actually soybean. 1.51% to the downside. Biggest winner is coffee. 2.12% uh, to the upside. Indices, Dow is down 1.3%. Oh, poor baby. S&P is likewise down 1.1%. NASDAQ is down almost 1%. And the S&P mini is down 0.87%. Screw it all. Real money is at $20,897. We've had 292,000 transactions in the last 24-hour period, and that's 12,200 transactions every hour on the hour. 425,000 BTC have been sent in that 24-hour period with an average transaction value of one and a half Bitcoin, median transaction value 0.017 BTC or $350. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that's what it used to be on average all the time, about 350 bucks, you know, somewhere below 400 bucks, but definitely above, you know, uh, 300 itself. Uh, was kind of the range for like, God, I don't know, man, like two years. And then it just went insane. 700, 600, 800 for the average. 
and now it's back down to these nominal values at a block time of 10 minutes, which is exactly where it needs to be. Reward is uh, 0.1 BTC in fees on a per block basis and 14 and a half BTC overall in the last 24 hours for fees. And with a 2.85% dip in hash rate, we're still at 273.57 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator. So shitcoins are doing well today, apparently, because Dogecoin is at 8.2 United States pennies. And while it shouldn't be even one United States pennies, it's been between 6.5 and 7.5 United States pennies for a while. So as usual, the shitcoins are raging again. God. Nobody learns their lessons. 6,853 transactions waiting on five blocks to clear. We have a $402.8 billion market cap, which is 3.19% of gold's market cap. And we may, if we so choose, spend our one Bitcoin on 11.1 ounces of shiny metal rocks. There are 19,265,778.26 Bitcoin in circulation and 5,205.3 of those are in the Lightning Network valued at $108.8 million being run over 16,001 node sporting 75,636 payment channels and 68.4% of all of it's being run over TORS associated 11,250 Lightning Network nodes. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Let's do some boostograms so I can clear these off. Um, Cause I, I just, I feel, I feel that it's necessary to read your boostograms when you sit down and take the time to write me and send me Satoshis. It's important. Pitar. Striper boost. I don't hate him either, but Peter will not deserve a second chance until he admits responsibility. Says he's sorry and repents for not telling his fans that he pulled his personal money out of BlockFi after they told him they couldn't afford to pay him anymore. He knew enough to pull his personal money, but didn't think to tell anyone else he did this. His quote, I'm just too dumb in quote to know any better just doesn't fly with me. He's talking about Peter McCormick uh, and uh, the fact that he had BlockFi as a uh, major sponsor to what Bitcoin did podcast. I don't know why it's so hard for Peter or anyone. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be just Peter. Anybody to say, to, to write an apology and say, I'm sorry. I mean, if that's all you can do, well then do that. But Anybody can do that. Anybody can put pen to paper or, you know, keys to keyboard and write up a substantial and sincere apology. It's not like everybody's asking him to give all his money away, right? I'm not asking him to do that. You know, I'm not asking him for like, you know, recompensation or whatever it's called. I just saying, if, if you screwed up that bad, you should apologize. And honestly, I don't see how that damages you. It's almost as if these people, you know, Peter included, will say, if I write an apology, then I'm admitting wrongdoing and I'll lose my listeners. I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. I, 
I don't see how hard this is. Why is an apology so hard? And as to he should have told his listeners to pull their money out of BlockFi when he did, I know why he didn't do that. He would have been sued. It would have been immediate. It, he would have been sued. I guarantee you, even if there was nothing contractual in his agreement with BlockFi to do or not do X, Y, and Z, let's say that there was no mention that he wasn't able to do that, that he wasn't able to warn his customers if something went south. There was no non-disclosure agreement clause, nothing like that in, in his contract with BlockFi. He still would have been sued for damaging the company's reputation, even though the reputation was already on fire. That's why he didn't do that. Does that make him, does that excuse his actions? No, but his hands were tied legally. I guarantee you he makes enough money that he's got a lawyer and he may have even asked and he can't even tell us that because even after the fact, Zach Prince and all those people over at BlockFi, they can still sue his ass for anything. I mean, I don't think they could sue him over an apology, even if BlockFi's name was actually mentioned. But I guarantee you, if he were to have said on air, on his show, and advised his listeners to pull their money out of BlockFi, not only would he have been sued, if something went wrong, he could have been sued by some of his listeners because financial advice, because it is financial advice. I know I'm kind of splitting hairs. It's possible that a good lawyer could figure out how that's not financial advice, but the smart money's on. You'll get sued for giving financial advice. If one of your listeners tries to execute and somehow or another loses the Bitcoin, then they say it was Peter's fault because he told me to go do it. And because I fucked up or I fucked up because I was nervous, because I was scared, because I was whatever, because Peter kept yelling at me right? There are always extenuating circumstances that we do not recognize. But what I, what I just can't get over is him making a simple apology. That's not hard. And honestly, it garners goodwill. And I don't know why he hasn't done it yet. Letter 6173 with Striper Boost says, let's hope the shitcoin twins fall in the DCG shitfest. Yeah, well, that's probably coming. Uh, user with a lot of numbers says, great job of cutting through the noise. Thank you. I appreciate that. Jim Leahy, 700 sats. <clears throat> oh, user with a lot of numbers gave 1,000 sats, by the way. Jim Leahy, 700 sats says, how I did my move. One, get a remote job. Two, Sold or gave away basically all of my stuff. Three, flight to Costa Rica and stayed at a friend's house. Four, found a place to live here in Puerto Viejo. Five, convinced the girlfriend to move out here. She'll be here at the end of January. I moved out here with two backpacks full of stuff and my surfboard. I've been loving it so far. Also, there's a few shops in Panama that accept Bitcoin. So that was awesome to support them while I was in Panama for a few days. Uh, Jim, I appreciate you getting back to me on my question of how, how you affected that. I, I, I greatly appreciate that. And I also greatly appreciate the 700 Satoshis. Nick underscore dose 169 sat says cheers. Nice. 
Let's get it going on. With confident ignorance of Bitcoin, so-called experts, in quotes, sacrifice their credibility. <laughs> Bitcoin Magazine, Mickey Koss. Barely a week into 2023, and I've seen Anthony Pomp Pompliano debate Michael Schallenberger and Joe Rogan interview Peter Zihan. While these media impressions may seem unrelated, a common thread is sown between the two. Experts in different fields confidently professing uninformed opinions on Bitcoin. Zihan's misunderstandings can be heard in the last 20 minutes or so of the interview. In fact, our friend Guy Swan just made a nearly 90-minute long episode of Bitcoin Audible dedicated to tearing Zihan's analysis apart. Cafe Bitcoin did the same recently in the first half or so of its January 9th, 2023 episode. Schallenberger made it a little easier to locate his misunderstandings, apparently going on Pomp's podcast for the sole purpose of demonstrating his complete and utter ignorance. I think one of the most pertinent questions to consider following these conversations is, how are either of these two gentlemen qualified to make such assessments in the first place? How could someone feel so comfortable saying something they so obviously know so little about? If these two are so confident with opinions that they are obviously wrong and uninformed, why should I trust them on anything else? While discussing these two interviews in a small group, one of the members said something that inspired the idea behind this article, quote, For now, they both feel secure in their ass assertions. In the next bull cycle, these clips will haunt them and tarnish their credibility, said Alex Brammer, board of directors member for Bitcoin Today Coalition. He even turned that sentiment into a tweet as seen below. And Alex Brammer says in the tweet, I'm looking forward to Peter Zahn and Schallenberger being bombarded with clips of their smug proclamations of Bitcoin's demise when it hits the next all-time high. Like Peter Schiff and Paul Krugman and others before them, they too will lose credibility for their uninformed ignorance. Pausing to say Peter Schiff and Paul Krugman have lost no credibility except among Bitcoiners and other people in cryptocurrency, okay? And whenever I say cryptocurrency, I've always got air quotes behind them. Um, to their fiat counterparts, Paul Krugman is still a prophet. To the gold bugs, Peter Schiff is still the man. He's lost no credibility. We gotta be careful about that. Just because they have no credibility with us doesn't mean that they don't have credibility with the wider world. And it's the wider world that we're trying to capture, right? So uh, I don't mind making fun of Peter Schiff and Paul Krugman. By all means, go ahead. But understand, there are people that, that think these people are just the smartest dudes in the room. And it's possible that, you know, making fun of them could put them off on, on Bitcoin. Who knows? I, I honestly don't care. Bitcoin doesn't need them, right? Because there's always going to be somebody that comes to the conclusion that these people aren't credible all by themselves. Those are the people that we want. And honestly, Paul Krugman and Peter Schiff and Peter Zihan and Schallenberger, I guarantee you that they are only heroes to Western civilization's citizens. Nobody in Zimbabwe probably knows who these people are and they don't care. Kenya, probably never heard of them. Don't give a shit. And it's Central America, South America, the continent of Africa, 
the Baltics, the Balkans, and a couple of scattered other places that I only give a shit about when it comes to hyper-Bitcoinization. The West, by its own proclamation, will be the last entrance into that ecosystem and we will pay the highest price for it because people like Peter Schiff and Paul Krugman, who clearly don't know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to anything in the future, are still regarded as heroes. That's why it's dangerous to start saying, well, they'll just lose credibility. No, they won't. No, they won't. No, they won't. Not until the very end. Keep that in mind as we move forward. A characteristic common to Bitcoiners is the low time preference that they have. The willingness to sacrifice short-term comfort for long-term gains as opposed to just following every whim. These individuals are the personification of what the fiat system is doing to people. A symptom of what happens when the money ceases to communicate clear pricing signals. Their time preference has been so skewed that they are willing, willingly sacrificing their long-term credibility for short-term notoriety. They do it thoughtlessly with little understanding of what they're even critiquing, let alone the long-term implications of what they're saying. They do it because they must, lest they be cast out as simpletons like the rest of us. Whatever happened to simply saying, I don't know. Perhaps more importantly, what happens when all these naysayers are just proven wrong not just proven wrong, but completely, spectacularly, and absolutely wrong in every way. I predict in the months and years to come that those who chose to speak carelessly will begin to quickly lose any semblance of the credibility that they once had. Quote, briefly stated, the Gelman amnesia effect is as follows. You open a newspaper, to an article on some subject that you know well. In Murray's case, physics. In mine, show business. You read the article and see the journalist has absolutely no understanding of either the facts or the issues. Often, the article is so wrong, it actually presents the story backward, reversing cause and effect. I call these wet streets cause, hold on. I call these, quote, wet streets cause rain stories. Papers full of them. Quote, in any case, you read with exasperation or amusement the multiple errors in a story and then turn the page to national or international affairs and read as if the rest of the newspaper was somehow more accurate about Palestine than the baloney you just read. You turn the page and you forget what you know. End quote, Michael Crichton. He's the one that came up with Gelman amnesia. And it is. I mean, think about it this way. Let's say you're a lawyer and you know you know constitutional law. And you read an article penned by another constitutional lawyer. And they are just patently wrong about the argument that they are making. Or the situation that they are analyzing. You know better because you're good at it. And you know you're good. And then, and then, you turn the page. And you read another article by somebody else who claims to be a master at, I don't know, mechanics. And they're talking about, you know, mechanic, like the how to build a rocket engine or something like that, or why this new rocket engine is going to be badass. 
How do you trust them? You just do. Because you forgot that the guy that you know is patently wrong about one article even existed because you turned the page. We gotta be, all of us have fallen into this trap. And we've been here for a very long time and our parents have and our grandparents have. We were stewed in this, which is why it's so hard for all of us to get out. When you're wondering, why won't my friend listen to me about Bitcoin? They don't know anything other than the fiat world and they don't even understand it. You're fighting, you're fighting, you're trying to break through two different brick walls to get to your friend. One is their ignorance of the fiat system. Two, the fact that for three generations, that's all they, that's how they grew up. That's how their parents grew up. That's how their grandparents grew up. They grew up with lies. You're fighting, you're, you're trying to break through two, two brick walls, not just one. That's why it's so hard. Continuing on, Bitcoin is the orange pill that wakes you up from the matrix, yes. But what if the narrative became just too absurd? What if their critiques and the gripes became so obviously wrong that these so-called experts were no longer respected, let alone listened to? I was a fan of Zihan. I found his books interesting and informative. They appeared well thought out and thoroughly researched. But after that interview, I don't know what to think anymore. After hearing him speak, before even hearing his Bitcoin critique, all I really heard was a quasi-automaton, a character who was well-rehearsed at speaking in polished sound bites. His Bitcoin analysis was so smooth, well-worded, and confident. Man, was he confident. And everything he said was absolutely wrong. I see the next few years as the precipice for the dissolution of current-day experts. Much like the economist uncle in the dystopian tale, The Mandibles, these experts will have answers for everything <clears throat> and yet won't be able to explain a thing. Slowly but surely, people will realize that the world that these experts have created inside their own theoretical minds no longer exists. Reality will eventually come crashing down. But you don't have to wait for that. Once you understand Bitcoin, you understand that the long-term price is slowly approaching infinity as central banks gradually then suddenly add monetary units to the system in order to manipulate the cost of capital as they see fit. Saving in Bitcoin may be a bumpy road for those who do not yet see the value, but in my eyes, it's the safest thing that I own. As I sit to reflect during this tumultuous week in the bear market, I feel that I've never been more bullish than I am right now, and I completely agree. Mickey Koss, thank you for bringing us that. Now, speaking of one of those experts, all right, going from one right out of the frying pan into the fire, Tucker, Tucker Carlson outlines a wild theory to explain the Bitcoin price rise is maximum tinfoil. Braden Lindra or Lindria? Lindria, Cointelegraph has it. Controversial Fox News television host, Tucker Carlson, has proposed a curious conspiracy theory that seeks to link airline delays in the United States and Canada with the surge in the Bitcoin price. He suggested the computer outage that caused thousands of grounded flights on January the 11th may, may have been caused by ransomware and theorized the United States government may have bought a large amount of Bitcoin to pay the ransom. However, he did not provide any evidence for his claims. Speaking on his Tucker Carlson Tonight program on Fox News on January the 17th, 
Carlson argued that the Bitcoin price increased by over 20% soon after the travel chaos. Quote, almost all ransoms like this are paid in Bitcoin. No, they're not. So if the U.S. government was buying huge amounts of Bitcoin in order to pay a ransom, Bitcoin prices would surge, of course. So the question is, what happened? Well, yes, it has happened. Yeah. Using quote, end quote. Further quote, since the nationwide ground stop last Thursday, the price of Bitcoin has shot up around 20%. Is that a coincidence? He added. While Tucker's fan base online appears to believe the theory is plausible, it was less well received by the quote unquote crypto community. Nick Almond, the founder of Factory Dow, described Tucker's wild theory as maximum tinfoil to his 13,500 Twitter followers. Almond replied to supporters of the theory that he doubted very highly that the United States government would buy billions of dollars in Bitcoin on the open market to pay for the ransoms. Blockstream CEO and cypherpunk Adam Back also mocked Carlson to his 506,000 Twitter followers, stating that the two events were exactly what Carlson described them to be, a coincidence. Other arguments made against the theory on crypto Twitter included that the United States government already has a large amount of confiscated Bitcoin, that the government would buy it over the counter if they did buy it, and that Bitcoin is traceable and transparent. Large ransoms are more likely to be paid in Monero. Stack Hodler pointed out to his 30,000 followers that the recovery of $5 billion in assets by FTX was a more likely explanation for the recovery in the crypto markets. More than 1,300 flights were canceled, with an additional 10,000 flights being delayed in the first two days of the disruption. The United States Federal Aviation Administration stated on January the 11th that the disruptions were caused by a, quote, damaged database file. <laughs> in its notice to air mission systems, which the agency said was not harmed by a cyber attack. The issue has been fixed and flights have resumed normal operations. Okay. Yeah, see, that's the thing is that the United States government's already sitting on a huge hoard of Bitcoin. And honestly, you know, as for as incompetent as sometimes the federal government is, as we saw with, you know, at the first of the show, the Department of Justice well, they're just not messing around and they're going to get you from anywhere. Well, if that's true and this was a ransom, then they would have got them, right? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of hyperbole, but I'm just saying we do. The United States federal government is sitting on a hoard of Bitcoin that they confiscated from those two yahoos that quote unquote hacked Binance. Yeah. While me and my wife and kids were coming home from Colorado, she had that on a true crime uh, podcast about that exact thing. It was a whole episode about that exact issue. And I can't remember the two people's names, but they were in no way, shape, form, or fashion even able to, you know, form a technical thought in their head, much less carry out such an immense hack on Binance. We're talking like half a million, like 500,000, something like that, coin. It, it, it's, it, it was an immense hack and Binance doesn't have it because the United States federal government has it. And honestly, if, if they weren't stupid and they were to sit on it instead of selling it on the open market through the United States Marshal Service, like they have done in the past, and they just kept it, they'd be bolstered on two fronts. If a ransom that they weren't able to solve before they needed to pay the ransom were to occur on United States systems, they'd be able to pay the ransom. And if not, if they didn't have to worry about that, 
then they've got the soundest money in the world and they're far and ahead or far and away ahead of most other governments on the planet. I don't know. It's just kind of up to the federal government as to what they want to do. But Tucker Carlson has demonstrated in this particular instance that he just doesn't know how this shit works. It was a coincidence. Now, can any of us prove it? No. But it's just as likely we can prove that statement as he would be able to prove that the United States government was buying Bitcoin because they got ransomware on their notice to airmen uh, system. I don't even, it's just, I'm, I'm surprised Tucker did that. I really am. Although, you know, maybe it's a trial balloon. Maybe he's reaching out into the world of tinfoil hattery, you know, much more than people accuse him of doing, you know, already. He, I mean, I like Tucker. I don't listen to the show, but I mean, I don't have anything. I certainly don't have anything against him, but he probably should not have gone down this particular road. He's, he's just getting fucking hammered. Um, let's see, where are we at? Oh, we are, we are well over an hour. What do we got here? Okay. I do want to do this one. Bitcoin mining is proving to be a lifeline for Africa's oldest national park. Uh, BTC Casey has this one for Bitcoin magazine. Virunga National Park, located in the Democratic Republic of Congo, is Africa's oldest protected space and a testament to the biodiversity and natural beauty of the continent. But the park has faced increasing pressure from local militia groups that have waged violent attacks on its animals and employees, all while various problems, including COVID-19, led to an extended closure of the park to tourists, which it claims represents 40% of its revenue. A report in the MIT Technology Review describes how park director Emmanuel de Merode has turned to Bitcoin mining to monetize the park's abundant natural resources and are otherwise stranded in order to preserve the park's existence. De Merode met with Sebastian Golespu, I can't pronounce that, owner of a big block green services, which advised El Salvador on its own Bitcoin city. Goosebiu, I guess, Goosebiu, eh, whatever, described how they used to do mining by buying electricity. It wasn't efficient. The money maybe goes to oligarchs in Kazakhstan. In Virunga, we see it saving the park. Goosebiu added or aided Demerode in setting up the first portions of the operation in 2020 which began mining in September of that year. The site then hired nine, count them nine, full-time workers to staff the facility who work in rotating shifts within the jungle to operate the miners. It's powered by three hydroelectric plants within the park, a sustainable source of electricity that was already being used to power nearby towns. Quote, today there are 10 containers powered directly by the plant's four meter turbines. Each container holds 250 to 500 rigs, uh, describes the report. Varunga owns three of these 10 containers, while Guaspu owns the remaining seven. Their arrangement allows him to purchase energy from Varunga while keeping the Bitcoin mined. Michael Saylor commented on the project, saying that Bitcoin is, quote, the ideal high-tech industry to put in a nation that has plenty of clean energy, but isn't able to export a product or produce a service with that energy, end quote. Demaru described how, despite recent market downturns, he still retains confidence that the project will be successful, saying, quote, we're not speculating on its value. We're generating it. If you buy Bitcoin and it decreases, you lose money. 
we're making Bitcoin out of surplus energy and monetizing something that otherwise has no value. That's a big difference, end quote. He also addressed custody of the Bitcoin in response to a question about what would happen if he was attacked, an ever-present threat in that jungle. <clears throat> quote, if I crashed, the digital wallet is managed by our finance team. It's unlikely we sit on Bitcoin for more than a few weeks anyway because we need the money to run the park. So if something happened to me or our CFO lost the password, we'd give him a hard time, but it wouldn't cost us much. Uh, not exactly sure that's a very well thought out plan there, y'all. That just sounds like an on the fly boating accident. And uh, honestly, you need something better than that. My suggestion is uh, Unchained Capital and uh, a multi-sig. Just, you know, just saying. But again, Bitcoin mining kind of coming to the rescue of some of these people. Um, on all these stories, when you hear stuff like that and you automatically assume it's good news and it can never go south, please be aware that shit has gone south like almost every time. Like they turn into shit coiners or... You know, something happens where, you know, I don't know, in this case, maybe the containers get stolen. Just don't always see everything through rose-colored lenses, okay? That's going to do it for the morning roundup. All right, Dad says jokes. People are usually shocked when they find out I'm not a very good electrician. Yeah, I'll bet. I guarantee that. Um, what have we learned today? Well, we learned that the Justice Department, in my opinion, the Justice Department is running out of really hot headlines. You know, really, really hot shit and they're going after anything that they can get to create FUD in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah, probably at the behest of the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department and you know the, the administration. Because what we continuously show these people, Paul Krugman, Peter Schiff, Schallenberger, that other dude, Zihan, whatever however you pronounce his name, all the administration of the United States, all the governments of the Western world, is that it doesn't matter what you do to Bitcoin. It won't die. It's never going to die. If the, well, the price is going to zero, well, that means that I get to buy all the Bitcoin and I'm not the only one on the planet that wants to buy all the Bitcoin at zero dollars per Bitcoin, which does what? Price goes to a buck. Okay, now I've got to make the decision. Do I want to pay a buck for all the Bitcoin? Well, I don't have $21 million. So I can't do that immediately, but somebody else has 21 million. And all of a sudden there's two people that have 21 million. And guess what? The price goes to $2. Cause they're going to be bidding over it. See how this works. Bitcoin's never going to zero. Too many people want it. Too many people respect it. And there's no amount of FUD that you can launch against it. There's no altcoin that can take it down. If you want to be safe, just buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin. Don't put your Bitcoin on exchanges. Don't leverage your Bitcoin on a loan. Just hold Bitcoin in cold storage. Have low time preference. Find something in life that you feel compelled to do and look at Bitcoin as 
being a vehicle that allows you to have some security that you can try. I mean, working the Fiat job is one thing. I get it. I do. I get it, man. I loved my job at Texas Tech University, but I was, I was just a cog. That, I mean, that's okay. I don't feel bad about myself, but I sure as shit didn't want to die in that chair. I want to build, I'd like to build a silvo pasture out of black walnut trees, black locust, honey locust, hedgerows for forage, and take extreme care of the pasture soil in between the rows of trees and figure out how to do pasture management for animal grazing. How many animals can I pack on? These are important to me. I feel that I'm going to have a shot at being able to do that. If I were to do that in a fully fiat world, how crazy is that? There's no guarantee that I would be alive to see the first, you know, the first walnut, black walnuts fall and be able to sell them on the open market. There's no guarantee that I'll be good at all at managing any amount of animals other than chickens. I'm used to chickens. I could probably do that. But, you know, past 2000, Maybe not. I might suck at it, but I can dream about it because I have some Bitcoin. I've got a little. I'd like to put more in that jar. That's where you come in. Send me some sats and a boostagram and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.